Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Make it kind. Make it kind. M-I-P. With Masamela Matsumo. Mark Thompson. Make it kind. Get woke. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, we started a few minutes late, but we're going to move it along. Uh, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton is en route again, so she should arrive at about 10 minutes thereabouts. Uh, and, of course, she had, a, had to vote, but she, she will be here. Uh, we've got a first-rate uh, panel. I'm, I should introduce myself. I'm Sharon Pratt. It's my great privilege. Uh, thank you. Uh, my great privilege to be the founding director of the Institute of Politics, Policy, and History, housed here at the University of the District of Columbia. Uh, and we are very proud and pleased to be here at the university uh, where we have with us tonight uh, some members of the Board of Trustees, uh, Tony, uh, Carolyn, uh, Mr. Scott here. He's a Washingtonian. I should be calling him by his first name. <laughs> Do we have any other members of the Board of Trustees that I overlooked? Uh, uh, we also have... Uh, uh, members of our senior advisory committee, I did see her earlier, uh, Beverly Perry, who's been a real champion uh, for us. Uh, we have the Secretary of the District of Columbia with us tonight, uh, Kim Bassett. Uh, we are doing this tonight in partnership with the Mayor, Mayor Bowser's Commission on the uh, Martin Luther King uh, holiday. Uh, and so uh, 
and we have several members of the commission. Do, the, do you guys want, if you'd be kind enough to stand? <laughs> Those of you? <laughs> members of the commission. Lee Bryant. Okay, so this evening, uh, the person who's really in charge uh, is Mark Thompson, the Reverend Mark Thompson. Uh, but we have, as I said, we have Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, a key architect of the, what we are celebrating tonight, the historic March on Washington. In 1963, we have our, uh, Dr. Ar Eric Arneson, who is a very celebrated scholar uh, of James Hoffa, uh, James R. Hoffa, a uh, professor of modern American labor. And in that capacity, because so much of our marches and activism in America were inspired by labor. So he is going to create the historical context for tonight's conversation. We also have with us Denise Rolard Barnes, who's an activist and a chronicler. Uh, uh, and as the publisher of the uh, Washington of the Informer, Washington Informer, and we have Dr. Plourd. Did I'm saying it right? Yes. He is the lyrical uh, professor, right? <laughs> professor lyrical. Oh, yeah, professor right. lyrical. Either order is okay. He's right yeah. here. He's a. He's the. You wouldn't believe it. He's a mathematician. <laughs> right here at the University of the District of Columbia. But the person who's going to pull it all together with somebody who is the, uh, the finest expression of activism. I met him when he was ready to, to bring down the ramp of, right here at the University of the District of Columbia uh, a few years ago. Uh, he is on our senior advisory committee. He is the one who says, make it plain, mm -hmm. and tonight he will. Would you please give a warm welcome to Mark Thompson. Let's give Mayor Pratt a round of applause and how grateful we all are that she has taken on this task. Uh, let me just say um, good evening to you all. Good to see uh, so many friends once again uh, and to be back home. Uh, I lived here for 25 years uh, before I moved to New York 10 years ago. It's been 10 years, time flies. But I was actually born here. My uh, mother was a senior at Howard University uh, when I was born. I'm a Freeman's baby too. Yes, right. Class of 66, Freeman's Hospital. So D.C. will always be my home. And we acknowledge, too, being here uh, at UDC, uh, where uh, the mayor came to support us when we closed down the school. Believe it or not, one of the things we were fighting for then was institutes and panels like this, uh, making it more of a state university. And so we won a lot of that struggle. UDC... Um, is really come a long way. Is this, is this the president of the university coming in? Dr. Mason speaking, just talking about this great university. Give him a round of applause. And, and if you all just indulge me for a moment, the, the historic protest we had at the university was 30 years ago this September. Wow. Um, and I know I don't look like I did that 30 years ago. But that's what happened. And, um, you know, um, the very first act on the part of Mayor Pratt-elect and Congresswoman Norton-elect was to come up here and join our protest. We called them. They, they had won the primary in September. 
And the protests began about two weeks later. And so they hadn't even had a chance to do much else. They were still elect. They, you know, they weren't fully in yet. The transition was beginning. And we reached out and said, we need you all to come up here and support us. And they did. And, and one of the things that was most important about that was that um, you know, a lot of people in this community, and in, including two very prominent um, print newspapers, the Washington Times at that time and the Washington City Paper, uh, always referred to UDC in a pejorative term. Uh, and so pejorative, I, I won't repeat it, but some of you remember what that was, all right? And when we, President Mason, stood up and they saw all of us students talking and sounding intelligent and looking intelligent, it, it really changed the perception of the university. Um, and so um, I want to just dedicate my time here tonight to a dear, dear friend um, who was one of the students who helped us uh, close down the school, which was a physical act. It was an act of nonviolent civil disobedience, professor, and it wasn't easy. The Persian Gulf War was going on. It was just starting. And uh, the Israeli embassies up the street, people didn't think we were really a student protest. They thought we were a bunch of terrorists, Ken. Hmm. And so because of Chief Fullwood, God bless his soul, Sam Jordan, um, and also a dear, dear friend um, who kind of was in charge of security and securing the students, students and negotiating with Chief Fullwood every day, a gentleman by the name of Encilo Ucre. Um, Encilo, um, his birth name was Stephen Etheridge. His father was Sam Etheridge, who was a longtime civil rights organizer with the NEA. You remember Mr. Etheridge? Uh, well, Encilo, you know, a lot of people saw me as a face of the movement, but Encilo really kept everything locked down. So we were in constant contact uh, with the, all of the authorities so everyone was safe and there were no misunderstandings. And I want to dedicate my time here tonight to my brother who, we were the same age, he passed away. And um, it, this was a big part of his life. He, one of the members of his security team was his wife, not, well, his, a young woman by the name of Natalie. He met here at the protest and he ended up getting married. So this experience at UDC changed a lot of people. So it's always meaningful for me to be back here. Um, again, uh, good to see everyone. Glad the Holiday Commission is here. That's the beautiful thing about D.C. The movement came to D.C. and people stayed. The movement was in the government. I remember when there wasn't a Martin Luther King holiday yet. But we had a commission, didn't we? D.C. was one of the cities that honored and lifted up Dr. King even long before um, the holiday came to be. So it is all very good to be here. We do have uh, an outstanding group of panelists to talk about uh, the power of, of protest and the power of marching. We will begin with um, our scholar who was just telling me he is teaching. He, he got his graduate seminar to start early tonight so he could be here. And I asked him, what's your seminar about? He said, 20th century civil rights. So that must be fun to teach and fun to take, all right? Uh, and, of course, he hails uh, from GW, uh, and so please welcome. He's going to come to the podium with his prepared remarks. I told him I didn't mind that at all. So just come on up here, Dr. Eric Arneson. Give him a round of applause again. Thank you, sir. Cut me off when you need to. Okay. Okay, good. good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. 
It's a real pleasure to run from a graduate class studying the history of civil rights protests uh, in the 20th century to an event such as this. Uh, my job as the historian on the stage is to place the events we're going to hear about this evening uh, into a longer historical context. Uh, I've got uh, a handful plus of minutes, and I just want you to appreciate how difficult it is uh, to talk for such short period of time, given that I could and am teaching an entire semester's long class and could do many more on all of these topics. The March on Washington that we'll be talking about this evening brought a quarter of a million people to the National Mall in August of 1963. This was the single largest demonstration, gathering of protesters in the nation's history up to that point in time. The crowd was diverse, predominantly African-American. Those assembled also included a notable number of white marchers. They were trade unionists, civil rights groups represented a wide range of religious organizations. As it turned out, the eyes of the nation were on the marchers. And despite the fears of some March opponents, there was no violence. The march sparked no backlash. It was, most everyone agreed, a huge success. For the 50th anniversary of the march back in 2013, the US Postal Service issued a forever stamp. Two commemorative marches took place on the mall. Media coverage uh, of the anniversary uh, was extensive. Television and radio stations broadcast retrospectives on the original march in 63, offered coverage of more recent demonstrations. Universities sponsored lectures and conferences. Journalists weighed in on its historic significance and called attention to how far we as a nation have come on the one hand or have fallen short on the other. The 63 march is regularly commemorated. It has attracted considerable scholarly and popular attention. And today the march is enshrined in American's historical consciousness, and understandably so, for it was on that day, on that occasion, that Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the memorable speech, the iconic dream speech uh, that has become a defining moment of the civil rights movement. And that, in part, in large part, is what many people remember about the march, that it was King's march, it was about King's dream, that it was about black freedom, a sweeping term that embraced demands for an end to segregation and all forms of Jim Crow on the one hand and genuine demands for equality before the law on the other. That's what we learn in schools, from documentary films, and from many media accounts. As one traffic reporter put it, well, cautioning about road closures on the 50th anniversary. Um, this was uh, the anniversary itself of the dream speech. So we celebrate a speech uh, or a march that is boiled down to a speech. Uh, and the commemorations were a salute to the dream and its lasting power, the New York Times put it. A commemorative issue of Time magazine on the march had a running header that read, one man, one march, one speech, one dream. And that simple phrase sums up what many people think about that day. The 63 March on Washington has become a mythic event, in one writer's words. It's the single best-remembered moment of the civil rights movement. Now, the Time magazine uh, headline um, or banner there uh, does something of a disservice uh, to the countless men and women who made the march possible. There were, in fact, other marches. There were other speeches. Uh, and those organizing and participating in the march uh, had some very different dreams. An important element of the King Dream speech, uh, as important as it was, the march itself wasn't just about that dream, per se. It had very concrete goals, many of which have been lost in our present-day memory or conversations about the demonstration in 63. 
Activists came to Washington for many reasons, but initially organizers of the march had a very concrete purpose in mind, uh, a purpose that was embodied in the event's title, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And without the jobs dimension, the march might not have ever taken place. In fact, men and women who made the March on Washington possible were, in many cases, longtime activists with a deep history in civil rights and labor struggles. And present in the crowd that day were tens of thousands of trade unionists, auto workers, electrical workers, hotel and restaurant workers, teamsters and teachers for whom civil rights and labor rights were inseparable. On that stage, on that hot August day, along with Dr. King, was the dean of black activism, A. Philip Randolph for whom the march was a culmination of almost half a century of a personal struggle and political struggle for black equality. In 1962, Randolph had proposed a march on Washington, a jobs rights march and mobilization that would focus on black unemployment, inferior education, and the need for federal solutions to the issue of economic inequality. Joining forces with King, the NAACP, the National Urban League, and other groups in 63, that focus was broadened to jobs and freedom. And Randolph launched that day's agenda with an introductory speech. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers, he began. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. And this civil rights revolution, he continued, is not confined to the Negro, nor is it confined to civil rights. We, have, we know we have no future in a society in which six million black and white people are unemployed and millions live in poverty. We want a free democratic society dedicated to the political and economic and social advancement of all. And among the march's many demands were calls for federal civil rights legislation that guaranteed all Americans access to public accommodations, integrated schools, the right to vote, and the right to employment. And that last part is key. Organizers called for a quote-unquote massive federal program to train and place all unemployed workers into meaningful and dignified jobs at decent wages. And they called for a national minimum wage that guaranteed all Americans a decent standard of living. And so this economic component of the march was front and center, both in the official demands and in its title, the job, March for Jobs and Freedom. And Baird Rustin, the man who ran the ground operation, but really the organizational soul of the demonstration, once explained uh, that Randolph, and by extension, many of those working with him had, quote, understood that the social and political freedom must be rooted in economic freedom. And all the subsequent actions, and the march especially, have sprung from that basic premise. The 63 march was hardly the first or last demonstration in the nation's capital. Political protests through mass demonstrations have a long, contentious history uh, in the United States. In 1894, a march of the unemployed, known as Coxey's Army, descended on the nation's capital during a severe economic depression. And this quote-unquote army of tramps, as some called it, met with police repression on Capitol Hill. In 1913, a huge women's suffrage march procession flooded the streets of the city. In 1932, in the midst of another deep depression, army veterans undertook a bonus march and were violently repressed by the US Army. 
1939, the famed singer Marian Anderson drew 75,000 people to the Lincoln Memorial for a public concert after being denied use of Constitution Hall by the then all-white Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, and by the late 1950s, Dr. King and other civil rights leaders held demonstrations here in the city. Uh, and of course, in the 1960s, marches, demonstrations, and other protests were a regular occurrence against the Vietnam War, against US policy in Central America, against the nuclear arms race and nuclear power, and many other causes, uh, leading up to, more, more recently, the magnificent Women's March following the inauguration a few years ago. From my college years in the late 1970s through the present, I have held, held, attended a healthy number of demonstrations with friends and family members uh, on one issue uh, after another. And in recent years, I've uh, been very busy uh, going to uh, uh, demonstrations. Um, in closing, let me just say that as an historian, one of the most important demonstrations, one could argue, uh, for this city is one that never took place. Uh, in 1941, the original March on Washington, uh, proposed by A. Philip Randolph, supported by the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, organized by a new March on Washington movement that sought to force the integration of the armed forces and the desegregation of defense industries. And long story short, Randolph and Roosevelt, the president, went eye to eye. The president blinked first. And although desegregation of the armed forces would await a later uh, executive order in the late 40s, the president issued Executive Order 8802, creating a Fair Employment Practice Committee uh, that at least nominally uh, addressed the issue of employment discrimination. I could go on and on and on all evening, but uh, I can't. Um, so with that, uh, I will uh, draw to a close and say thank you very much. And I very much look forward to the rest of the discussion this evening. Thank you, Dr. Arneson. Give him a round of applause again, please. Please give Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton a round of applause as she enters the room. Um, we're going to, let's have Congresswoman Norton get settled and then we'll come back to her. Um, our next presenter uh, is someone whom we all know and love for all the great work that she does. Uh, in keeping the African-American press, the African-American media alive in Washington, D.C. Uh, her name is synonymous, her last name with our, or her maiden name with our civil rights struggle, because we all knew and loved her parents, didn't we? Uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rolark did so much day and night for us as a people, collectively, and for so many of us um, personally, I was just, I don't, did you know that before I told you that tonight? I didn't know if you knew that, but I was saying to Denise, when I was at WOL, um, they were going to have the elections, obviously, in 1994 in South Africa. And I, we didn't have enough money for me to go to South Africa to cover the elections or do the show from South Africa. So I called Dr. Rolock, and he immediately booked a plane ticket to fly me over to Johannesburg, and I was able to broadcast from Johannesburg on election day in South Africa because of Dr. Rolock. And that's just the kind of person that he was, wasn't he? Um, and we all know about the great, the great spelling bee that he started that continues to this day. And so here we wanna give uh, Denise an opportunity to talk about the effect 
the march had upon her and her parents, if she so chooses, uh, and the role the media played then and continues to play when it comes to march, direct action, and protest. Please give Denise Rolock Barnes a round of applause. Sit down. That would be great. I, I, would, I was just letting Dr. Arnes use, but whatever what, what yeah, you no, I don't. With. I don't have that kind of presentation, so I can uh, <laughs> be comfortable. Uh, but I think, thank you so much, Mark, for, um, and uh, Mayor Pratt. I, I want you all, first of all, to join me because I, you know, Facebook is our friend, and Facebook gives us people's personal information, and I understand she has a birthday tomorrow. So I'd like uh -huh. you just to wish her a happy birthday <laughs> tomorrow. And thank you very much for bringing this uh, conversation here today. I also want to thank you, uh, President Mason. Uh, as I was saying earlier, when I came on, came up to the campus today and saw all these cars parked outside, went into the parking lot, saw all these cars in the parking lot, saw all these people walking around the campus, made my way over here to the Student Center, which is a beautiful facility. It's just so exciting to see this university in full bloom. And I want to thank you and just think that, you know, this is a tremendous um, uh, rose in the city and all that the uh, city government has done to make sure that we have our own university. So, um, yeah, so 1963, let me see, I was uh, nine. Uh, <laughs> so I said, how did I end up on this panel? But, uh, and I remember actually, um, uh, a uh, cousin of mine who was a freshman um, at Lincoln University uh, came to Washington to come to the march, uh, and I was so fascinated by the fact that here was this young woman who was like 18 years old, traveled to Washington, D.C. on her own, by herself, to participate in this march. And uh, I knew of Dr. King, um, and I, you know, was raised by my mother, but would spend time with my father and stepmother and, and sit, in a sit at a dining room table when I would visit them and listen to them talk about political issues. Um, they, they married around that time. And my stepmother, I know this has nothing to do with anything, but it's a reflection, uh, was a great lover of minute rice. <laughs> <laughs> And my father's on this side of the table, my stepmother's on this side of the table, and they're debating and arguing about issues. She's, you know, she's the lawyer, he's the uh, newspaper owner, and they're arguing, and I'm, it's like watching a tennis match. Minute Weiss, Rice is just flying back and forth across the table because, you know, it's coming out. And uh, I would get focused on the subject matter and then get focused on the rice because I had to clean up behind them, <laughs> right? This was my job, but um, that, uh, that time period and, and my mother going out to this march in Washington and a cousin coming down and I just knew how important this was and to me that gives us sort of that spark of what allows young people to get involved in uh, issues uh, like uh, what Dr. King uh, was involved in and all the marches that have happened since then. Um, we remember that, uh, Professor, like you said, as the speech the event. But the one thing that we don't think about is what goes into putting this together, as you talked about before. The National Bar Association, I remember well, and, and Congresswoman Norton may know this as well, the National Bar Association with all these black lawyers that came to Washington, D.C. 
organized, sat and talked, and realized that they had to be on call, on duty. They were prepared, in case there were legal issues, to go to court to, to uh, represent the marchers. Uh, the media, uh, my father, and uh, interestingly enough, at that time, black newspapers in DC were plentiful. You know, we had the Informer, the Spotlight, the Afro, uh, uh, the Observer. Uh, there must have been about eight or 10 black newspapers in this town. And while a lot of them focused on, on social, and I mean entertainment type issues, this march and those that followed meant it was time to get serious about what they were gonna cover. And um, none of them, I mean, my dad used to call, uh, call those papers, which I still call mine, as opposed to weeklies, W-E-E-K-L-Y. He used the term weeklies, W-E-A-K-L-Y, because they didn't have the staffs, they didn't have, and it's interesting to see a photograph of him uh, coming up into this building with his pad and his little straw hat, you know, taking notes on something uh, that, was, that he was covering here. Uh, in the city, but it was, it was a time to, to shine, to be able to be the mouthpiece, uh, to be involved in the, we, journalists, black journalists were not necessarily those that really um, were observers, you know, and wrote stories. They were involved. They were the PR people a lot of times mm -hmm. for, for these marches, and particularly for that one. Um, and so they were, you know, trying to make their way up to the front line, trying to make sure that they could get the interviews that they wanted to get. And unfortunately, sadly for me, um, uh, the informer actually started in 64. So we don't have any copies of those newspapers. And I'm hoping that it, uh, we will find some archival uh, uh, newspapers of some of the others, coverage of the other newspapers that did exist uh, in, uh, in 63. But um, I know the Afro was here, and um, I think they were very, very much involved in the coverage of that. But the point was, how do we tell these stories in the way that um, other media don't tell it? They tell it in a single line. But we realized that there were all those issues. There were all these individuals that were involved uh, in the planning of this. There were all these um, uh, people that came from all over the country, how they got here getting off of trains, getting off of uh, buses, um, family members shacking up or, or, you know, with each other, uh, and strangers living in houses and staying in houses uh, all across the city. And so, you know, to see how these marches have uh, evolved over the years, I think one march that you didn't mention, which to me was probably one of the biggest that I know of in my lifetime, would have been the Million Man March, mm. right? Uh, same scenario. Uh, thousands of men from across, or hundreds of thousands of men from across the country coming to the United States, no violence, no, uh, uh, the, the street, the, the mall was clean, that was the big story, how they left the mall. But what they, what they did while they were here, and so many stories evolved out of that that said that, uh, that blamed uh, Farrakhan for taking money, uh, that the march was ineffective, um, that what has happened as a result of that. But we find our own stories, and we know that hundreds and hundreds of organizations started by black men, they went home, they started organizations in their churches, they started them in their communities, they started fatherhood organizations, they started mentoring organizations, 
There were so many that came out of that that still exist, that still exist today. So there always seems to be two interpretations, uh, or more than one interpretation, of what happens to a gathering when, when we get together. Uh, we just are, are looking forward to telling the story about the Women's Suffrage March. Because when we talk about that march of, of women that marched down Pennsylvania Avenue, I was just talking to someone about that a, a little while ago, People try to, and, and we're involved in a, I'm involved in a project called Unerased, because it's like what happened with Ida B. Wells when she was told that um, we don't really want black women involved in this march, because it's going to confuse the issues. And so if they are involved, we, we want them to be in the back. And Ida B. Wells said, Right up front, she stepped off the curb with Katie V. Stanley and all those other, uh, other folks. She stepped right up front and walked with those women. And the Deltas gathered in, in not so far in the rear, but they gathered and marched as well. No one tells that story like we try to tell it because it was a march that did not necessarily reflect the issues of black women in voting. And black women were involved in that march, not necessarily for the right to vote for black women, but for black people. So um, I could go on as well and talk about some of the others, like the one we just had last week. Uh, Peggy and I were just talking about how it seems as though the Martin Luther King Peace Walk in March, it seems like it was two months ago, um, but it's only been a week ago, but how that evolved itself and we, when we first started that um, 14 years ago. We did it as a peace walk, a peace march. And that was done out of the uh, legacy of what has happened in this city using Washington, D.C., but bringing uh, that kind of a march to a community where some of the organizations I just talked about a few minutes ago came together because you had you know, Alliance of Concerned Men, uh, Concerned Black Men, you had the Alphas, you have the Kappas, you have all these organizations that have been fighting violence in our communities that have been also fighting each other and said at one point we've got to come together and if there's no other time we can do it, we will do it in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King and pull together a three or 500 person march 14 years ago in his honor before we brought the parade back. Um, you know, they're, they're in the community in which I live, which is in Ward 8, there marches almost every weekend. <laughs> marches <laughs> against violence. We're all marching against violence. Someone dies, a young kid dies, there's a, 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 a terrible murder. Uh, families get together, the community gets together, and they do an anti-violence march. Um, uh, girls are missing in our community. We've got to stand up and make people know that you cannot take, a, take our girls out of our households or our communities. People come together and march. And so it's interesting how there was a generation or a conversation about a generation maybe you know, 20 years ago. And folks were saying, young people in the community don't think you need to march anymore. Young black folks said marching is old, but it hasn't stopped us. The marching keeps, thank you, the marching continues. And um, so I, I'll just end there um, and say that, um, you know, as long as we have our boots next to our beds, we're ready to march. <laughs> thank you, Denise.
Um, and we'll, we'll have a, a follow-up question or two, and then you, I know you all look forward to asking questions of the panelists as well. Now we want to hear from someone uh, who was here at the Great March on Washington in 1963 uh, and has been marching ever since. Uh, the, the legacy of that march is that, you know, those in her generation who did as Dr. King would have them do uh, to, to grow up and become even more active and become policymakers and become servants in government um, as well. And, um, and she most definitely uh, has done that. Um, she and I have always been culprits together in, in one way or another, fighting for statehood. You know, I'll remind everybody, and again, back to the May, I was saying before you came in, Congresswoman, that it was 30 years ago here in this building, before this was built, that we had the protest at UDC and you and as Congresswoman-elect and Mayor Pratt-elect came, but it was in 1993. Um, we had the original Tea Party. I saw Senator Strauss in here somewhere. Is he still here? Um, we dumped tea on the Capitol steps every Thursday <laughs> and got arrested for it so that Eleanor could push, Congresswoman Norton could push the first ever vote in the House for D.C. statehood. And we did that. So that was the real Tea Party, taxation without representation. And so, you know, those things work a whole lot better when you have a mayor and a congresswoman who also have come out of civil rights struggle. Amen? And so uh, we're very honored to have her with us and um, so good to see her whenever I do. It feels like being home whenever we're all together like this. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. need two mics. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. I very much appreciate not only your presiding, but the way you always preside, my fellow panelists. I hope you will forgive me, but uh, there was a vote in the Committee of the Whole. We don't have the full vote yet, <laughs> but we do have the vote on some matters, so I wouldn't want to miss that. That's why I am, <laughs> I am tardy. Mayor Pratt, I uh, appreciate uh, your work uh, uh, here for this forum. So uh, when I was a student, a youngster, when the March on Washington occurred. Uh, just a little bit? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, I appreciate your letting me know that. Um, the first thing to understand uh, is that the March on Washington was an unprecedented event in the United States. I was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and I'll mm -hmm. tell you how that came to be. The march occurred in 63 not out of the clear blue sky. It came after 10 years of movement in the South. It got, people got to the point where they said, uh, we have marched enough. Uh, the remedy does not belong in the, is not in the South, it is in Washington. 
So gradually, uh, a, a kind of rising voice said, we've got to take this movement to the seats of power. Uh, the problem is that there was no precedent. <laughs> the closest ca that, that there was was the so-called prayer pilgrimage in 1957. I was an even younger student then, <laughs> but came by car all the way to Washington. King was there. It was really, when it says prayer pilgrimage, it was church people. And King was there. Adam Clayton Powell, one of the few African-American members of Congress, Harry Belafonte was there. But you see, people are working themselves up to the point where they understand nothing happens in this country if you don't come out and make it happen. Um, initially, it was called the March for Freedom. Here is where it is important to know that the march came out of uh, largely uh, out of an understanding from A. Philip Randolph and by Rustin. These were both labor men. Uh, A. Philip Randolph was the head of the sleeping car porters. And both of these men believed that freedom in the abstract was not sufficient. That at root, the problem with African Americans was inequality of incomes and of opportunity. And that's where the jobs and freedom notion came from. You've already heard from the pre my predecessor speaker about the only thing even remotely like this, where we got the FEPC. That was in, in, during World War II when Roosevelt uh, uh, demand, was, when it was demanded that people working in the war industry be able to have jobs. The, March was engineered by what we call the big six. You know, NAACP, CORE, Urban League, and, and the rest. Uh, now, I was not uh, in DC initially. I was in Mississippi. I did, uh, Mississippi was the last holdout. SNCC had gone everywhere. I understand that I'm not in SNCC except in the summers. So, you know, when school's out, I want to go into the South. Now, Stick had gone throughout the South, but the last place to crack was the worst. Almost nothing had happened in Mississippi. The first sit-in was led by Mega Evers, who was old enough to be my father. And he got beat very badly sitting in a lunch county. That was just to have a sit-in. I came to Mississippi. Uh, and I was going into the Delta. You go into Jackson. Mega Evers met me and uh, said, please stay here. We don't have any, the, the fact that I was a law student <laughs> meant that I had something to get to that I could help him with. But I said, no, I am, I have to go where I said I was going to go into the Delta. So I've got to take a bus tonight to go to Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, Mega Evers put me on a bus to Mississippi, when I, to Greenwood. When I got to Greenwood, the SNCC people took me to a sharecropper's home uh, and, where I was to spend the night. Uh, 
before I went to bed, they showed me a tin tubs. <laughs> they said, we'll be gone when you get up, but this is how you can take a bath. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in that tin tub when the, and I can only call them youngsters, these were people even younger than I, came down to tell me that Mega Evers had been shot and killed. Now, this is the same Mega Evers that put me on the bus to go to Greenwood. He went home and got shot on his own front step. Uh, uh, here come, come I into this uh, quadrant. quadrant. Uh, the oldest person there, and I don't know how many of you knew Lawrence Giot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Larry Giot had gone to Winona, Mississippi, to get Fannie Lou Hamer out of jail. So, so these people, these youngsters came to me and said, uh, Larry, Giot has not come back yet. So I looked to my left, I looked to my right. I'm a college student, uh, but I'm the oldest one there. So I said, then I think I've got to go, but no, I'm sorry, I was a law student. I think I was in my first year of law school. I knew enough to ask as many questions as I could. So one of my questions had to do with who could I talk to here in Greenwood so that by the time I got to Winona, they would know who I was, as if that mattered. So I said, I want to tell them that I go to the Yale Law School. I want to tell them that I've told everybody where I was going, because uh, I, I do not mean to be put in jail, uh, not this time. So they, they then took, uh, they then um, uh, took me to the police chief. They said, the police chief here is one of them, but he does not picket us when the white citizens council pickets us. Uh, so, I talked to him, and I told him just what I said. I'm going, uh, but I don't mean to go to jail, and I called everybody up north and told them, and, and the rest of it. Uh, and indeed, uh, I went over, I, I asked to see Ms. Hamer, I asked to see Giot. Giot had to cover himself, he had been beat so bad that there were bruises all over him. The same for Ms. Hamer, I mean, this was, Mississippi at its worst. Uh, in the midst of all of this, we were able to get them out of jail. I was not put in jail. I go back to Greenwood and I get a call. And it said, uh, from friends in the North in New York. It said, the march on Washington is going to go on. Do you want to be a paid staff member of the March on Washington? I said, what is this summer going to give me? Of course. Uh, I went to New York. Um, my job was to help people get buses, uh, was to go out into the New York suburbs and the areas to talk about the march. Don't think people were anxious to come to a march. We were afraid we'd call a march on Washington. Nobody would come. So we believed we had to work people up to believe they should come, 
to believe it would be safe. They were only coming to Washington. We weren't asking them to go to Mississippi, for God's sake. <laughs> John Lewis, uh, I'm very sorry he can't be here. He's very ill. Uh, and we all should pray for him and wish for him the very best. But he is the only living participant of this big six. And he did speak at the march. You may have heard that there were uh, some um, uh, issues with John's speech. Believe me, it was John. It was all in the spirit of nonviolence. But he he, he did change the speech slightly. Um, I, I, on the day of evening of the march, I volunteered to stay in the brownstone in Harlem uh, all night in case people were calling, continuing to call about train, or bus, or other travel to Washington. But then I got to come to Washington in an airplane. <laughs> uh, um, that was quite a luxury for civil rights worker at that time. Mm. The irony of all of this is that essentially we were marching for equal opportunity, uh, for jobs and equal opportunity. Uh, who would at the, the first, uh, there's a direct line between the march and the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Inside the 1964 Civil Rights Act, perhaps it's the most important component, is the establishment of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I could not have known, nor could anybody, that I would become the first woman to chair the EEOC. <laughs> you never know what will happen, but that shows you how fast uh, history moves. And you know, thereafter, we get the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and it took the death of Martin Luther King to get the 1968 Fair Housing Act. A lot of sacrifice, but a lot of rights. The first time African Americans have achieved any rights, had achieved any rights since the Civil War. Thank you very much. Congresswoman Norton, thank you. Let's thank her again, please. And appreciate that story. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile 
and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.